there's two there's two sides of it. There's the inflation story, um, and you know there's dynamics happening there. There's also the technology story with a lot of things happening there as well. Um, then there's how they're operationally uh, uh, functioning, which is you know a lot of these locations went from eighty percent you know uh, either drive through or in store to fifty fifty you know uh, delivery models. Welcome to Inside Scoop with Sean Emery. Every week we are examining something new bringing you closer to companies, sectors, and themes. This recording should not be construed as a substitute for personalized individual advice from Avery and Company or any guests on the show. This is for educational purposes only and not intended to make an offer or solicitation for any companies or securities mentioned. With that, let's get on with the episode. All right. The topic of du jour today is restaurants. We have always been uh, a fan of this industry from the investment side really as it has created these long-standing brands uh, and they emerged from nothing and kind of blossomed into things like Chipotle and Starbucks and many others that have come before. You know, what once was an industry that had kind of low barriers and you could you could admittedly say still so today is now seeing things like scale, rewards programs driven by, you know, uh, enhancements in, in many digital capabilities, creating much more durable moats for those that actually get to that that peak. Essentially, you know, the bigger you are, the more resources you have to meet the customers where they want to be met, whether it's digitally or in person. We saw that with Chipotle's success years ago. Full disclosure, we were in, investors in Chipotle five years ago during that transformation. But today we have Michael Hallen from Bloomberg. He is the senior restaurant analyst. Um, and we're happy to bring you on, Michael. How are you doing? I'm doing well, man. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I think bringing you on, it, it's a good timing. There's so many cross currents going on in the industry, in the world in general, but specifically in the industry. And I think what we wanted to do was, you know, go through a couple different sections, really pick your brain in terms of how to look at this industry uh, from an investment perspective, the health of the industry, any emerging brands you're seeing. We talk about inflation. Obviously, that's uh, a key topic today. Inflation and also how that uh, pertains to automation. And I think we, we just spoke about that offline. Um, but anything you could share there. So let's start with number one, you know, uh, I guess, talk about the from an, the industry, from an investment perspective, maybe give a little uh, just before that a, a little bit of about you, uh, so we can we can gauge uh, you know um, who we're who we're speaking with today. Yeah, so uh, yeah, Michael Halen, senior restaurant and food service analyst here at Bloomberg Intelligence. Uh, I have a unique background. I, I've been trading. Uh, I was trading uh, stocks right out of college, so uh, I had eleven years of experience trading equities. Uh, nine years actually running prop desks. Uh, I was a big consumer of equity research. Uh, I think there is where I kind of uh, acquired a healthy disdain for some of the the work that was coming out of the sell side at the time. Um, we had a very technical analysis uh, heavy approach, um, you know. And then from there, I, I was largely automated out of a job. You know, black boxes really took over uh, a lot of the the human traders in the business. Uh, and and since then, I, I um, you know, I've been I've been tra I've been an equity analyst for for twelve years now. Uh, I've covered restaurants, food service, health and wellness, packaged foods, uh, and, and department stores for a little while as well. Uh, and and the volatility of restaurants and consumer uh, discretionary in general ha has been a great fit for me as a former trader. You know, I, I uh, embrace the volatility, and I think I have a, a good ability to to recognize what is priced into a stock. Um, so it, it's helped me so far in my career. Cool. So, you know, let's unpeel that a little bit, which is, you know, going into the industry of restaurants. Um, you know, how do you think about the the landscape, you know, whether it's top down or bottoms up, um, whichever direction you want to start, 
you know, thinking of, you know, how to invest in this, this area? Yeah, you know, restaurants are unique. Uh, um, it's highly fragmented, right? Market share really doesn't matter. Uh, you know, I know everybody starts with their their SWOT analysis and most of these other industries, and and I could care less about market share because uh, nobody's going to eat at McDonald's three times a day every day, and if they do, they're going to be pretty unhealthy. So uh, it's not kind of how we're looking at things. Um, you know, it's such a large fragmented industry, but scale does matter. Uh, you know, so you know, as you mentioned at the top, companies with scale can do. Um, you know, not only can they price uh, a hamburger at a, at a price that that their competitors just can't match without losing money, you know, they can also use that to help scale their technology and 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 use that to to gain market share and, and keep the share that they have. Uh, you know, there's basically no barriers to entry in this business. It's a short life cycle in general, um, all feeding into that volatility that I spoke of. And it's also you know a canary in the coal mine. A lot of investors will look at this industry. Um, you know, to see where the consumer is going. So I don't have any heads up uh, about where things are going from any other industries. You know, this is a, a typically a place where um, people will look because, you know, restaurant spending is as discretionary as it gets, right? It's much cheaper to eat at the restaurant. Uh, to, I mean, to, to uh, you know, it's much more expensive to eat at a restaurant than it is to buy food at a grocery store and, and cook it yourself. Yeah. So let's kind of break down maybe the sub-segments of the restaurant industry, like everything from kind of, you know, uh, fast casual um, to fast food um, to casual dining to maybe high end. You know, how do you think about maybe in a brief way, kind of those different compartments or or sub segments of the industry? Uh, you know, how do you think about each one separately uh, from one another, or do you think about them kind of all as one uh, when you're trying to make your analysis of you know brand uh, scale things like that? Yeah, from the top down, you know, I'm looking at all of them kind of as an aggregate uh, at times because um, they're at, at, at any given time, somebody's taking share from somebody else, right? But on a bottoms up type of analysis, when I'm doing my single stock research, I'm really looking at um, each sub-segment you know, and, and how they're performing versus their direct competitors. So, so I really look at both, right? Um, you know, on the bottoms up stuff, uh, you know, we're looking at quick service. And, and that's the traditional McDonald's, Jack in the Box, Wendy's typically have a drive through, do three quarters of the business through the drive through. Um, the dining room is really there just to um, for people to go in and eat when the drive through line gets too long, um, doing a, a little bit of delivery now, uh, not a ton, maybe 10% of their business. Um, you know, whereas the fast casuals are, are, are more of an elevated type of, of quick service experience, right? You typically have counter service. A lot of uh, customization is often available at these fast casual chains. You know, you're thinking uh, Chipotle, but anybody with an elevated type of, of experience like Wingstop and Shake Shack are, are considered kind of in that in that uh in that grouping, uh, you know, and then you have full service. And so, you know, from you know, where we sit on the public side, most of the full service names, you know, think, um, you know, sit down, uh, server, um, you know, full kitchen. So um, most of the chains that are public uh, in the full service realm are casual dining. So you think of the the Brinkers, which owns Chili's and Maggiano's and Darden's and um, Texas Roadhouse and, and those types of um chains that fit into that casual dining but there's also subsets in in full service you know there's polished casual and that's really just a little bit higher end than the names that i mentioned you know some of these chains that are maybe 30 40 dollars like a bonefish 34 dollar guest checks then you have you know more high end like uh ruth's chris and capital grill and and uh chains like that but um 
I, I guess those are the the main su- sub segments that that we're looking at and and um, we use to to help value our companies, right? So uh, I don't think it's it's always a it's not a good way to it's it's not a good practice to value um, you know a quick service by including casual dining chains into that that uh, calculus, right? So uh, you know, kind of how why why we look at at um, real apples to apples and oranges to oranges comparisons when we're trying to value these things. Yeah. And let, let, I guess let's take those, the stair step up from kind of the fast food all the way to the, the polished dining uh, in terms of margin structure. Um, you know, one is much more uh, service oriented. The other one is much more, um, you know, convenience oriented. Um, there's different things going on there as well in terms of automation, whether it's inside the kitchen and or in terms of the checkout uh, process. You know, I think COVID has actually uh, created maybe whether it's the opportunity for margin expansion through automation, uh, futuristically outside of food costs, um, but also things like menu and digital menus and, and and the likes. You know, talk about the margin structures potentially at a high level uh, from kind of the bottom to the more polished players out there, and how, how one should think about it. Yeah, you know, uh, when you when you look at the uh, quick service names, you know, they typically generate pretty good restaurant margins. You know, you're in the typically in the high teens. Um, you know, because they are able to automate, obviously those margins have been getting squeezed over the last couple of years. There's been, you know, a ton of inflation. Um, we're looking at, I don't know, I think, um, high single digit labor inflation this year and, and, uh, mid teens commodity inflation. So, uh, the margins across the board have been getting squeezed. So, you know, now those are probably sinking to the mid teens type of, of restaurant level margin. Um, you know, even though they have low priced items, they, they can automate more easily. Uh, their labor costs are a, a lot lighter than they are for a lot of the other competitors of theirs. Um, what I guess holds back some of the chains is just the volume that they do through their stores, right? So if you have, you know, a Burger King and it's doing, you know, 1.2 million in, in average unit volume, so that's their annual sales, um, you know, that's going to impact their margins in a negative way because there's definitely a high high percentage of the costs in a restaurant are going to be fixed, right? So um, that's kind of where they stand. Fast casual has done better. Um, base, a, a big part of that is the larger sales volume. So Chipotle can run you know, almost 3 million through, through their stores on average. So um, that really boosts um, boosts their margins because of the operating leverage in the model, right? So, so the stronger the sales levels, the better you're going to be. Um, coffee chains, when we talk about quick service, coffee chains is always... Uh, an attractive one, right? Like, um, there's some savings in the, in the build out costs because they're, they're not building grills and they don't have to have vents and, uh, hoods and all that kind of stuff. So, uh, you know, and, and they're doing pretty big volume on a high margin, addictive product coffee. So, um, margins and return on investment are pretty strong for, for Starbucks and, uh, some of the other coffee chains that we've covered in the past, like uh, that have gone private, like Pete's and, and Dunkin' Brands and stuff like that. So um, they're some of the highest margin restaurants that that we've ever covered. Um, and then when you move to casual dining, casual dining, just it, it takes a lot of labor to run those restaurants. And there's a lot of variables that impact them. Um, you know, what we're seeing is kind of, you know, at the high end, you have Darden, who's a rock star. Uh, they have they have the most scale and they're very operationally efficient and, and their margins went from the low twenties to now maybe around 20% right now. Um, but a lot of their competitors are, are, have sunk into the low teens because of the inflation. 
uh, that we've seen and a reluctance to, to price in line with inflation just just for fear of losing traffic, right? And so um, casual dining, it's, it's more complex. There's a lot more training. So when you lose employees, when turnover's high, turnover in this industry for hourly employees is, is well over 100%, you know, 130% historically. I think it's even higher than that right now, which is pretty wild to say. Um, yes, yeah, you know, um, you know, even GMs right now, I, I think historically it's been in the like 35%-ish range and, and that's high right now too. Um, so, uh, you know, there's a significant because it's more complex, there's a, a cost to training these employees, right? And so labor costs really hurts the, the casual dining and the full service type chains. Um, you know, so their margins, you know, have, have hit, have been hit. Some, some of the chains we cover have, you know, dipped even down into, into the low teens at a restaurant level margin. And that's, you know, that's much higher than the operating margin. That's probably double what the operating margin is, right? Once you incorporate um, marketing costs and, and corporate GNA and, uh, all of that other good stuff. So yeah, that's an important thing to 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 for the listeners is that restaurant level margin is not including uh, the things that essentially happen outside of the restaurant. I know it, it it sounds like that, but just for the clarification of of everybody is is what does this restaurant produce uh, on kind of a standalone basis outside of which is why again you go back to scale, which I think is what we you, you spoke about and I spoke about at the beginning, which is how scale can be advantageous for you know, a chain that's running thousands of uh, locations and uh, a percent of marketing is, is much smaller relative to the size of the volume coming through all the, the single locations. Um, now, so you talked about margins, you know, we talked at a high level around the, the, the different sub areas of the industry. Um, you know, talk a little bit about the um, valuation process that you think of as you're looking at uh, again, using the same stair step, which is starting from the bottom and moving on the way up to to value these these companies. And you know, there's brand value outside of just volume and and um, and and, and cash flow. I know that's the end all be all at, at some point, but at the same time, it's kind of like what is the true durability of this business? Because you could have uh, something like a Starbucks margins come down because they're you know refreshing their stores um, over a, a period of time, yet. Um, or some one-off costs and, and and whatnot, and but but at the same time, you know, there's this brand value that uh, is just totally hard to ignore. And, and just talk about how you factor that in. Yeah, so uh, you know, I'm looking at a lot of different things. Uh, you know, obviously, the top line growth is is fueled in this industry by same store sales and net unit gains. And um, the pandemic has has created a lot of gyrations in that that year over year same store sales number. So we've always looked at a two year to kind of smooth out uh, the the you know, ups and downs of, of, uh, calendar shifts year over year of weather impacts, uh, and things of that nature. But, you know, we now are, are looking at even going back to three years because of the pandemic caused just so many different shifts where full service at certain times, you know, obviously the full service was hit pretty hard and quick service gained market share. And then, you know, this year we're seeing a little bit of a reversion back to that where people are going back to the dining room. So we're going back all the way three years right now. Next year, I'll be looking at four years um, to kind of get a good gauge, right? Because if, if a chain had a really, really bad last two years, you know, they have the easiest comps of anyone. And if you just look at the year over year number, they're going to look like rock stars when in fact they're trailing everybody else. So, um, you know, we're going back three years and, and we're watching that those trends very, very closely. Um, margins, you know, restaurant level margins and, and the operating margins and margin potential, right? So who's trailing? Why are they trailing? Can they close the gap, right? The easiest way to close the gap is to increase your sales. But uh, is there low hanging fruit um, for whatever reason, you know, um, 
but but so that's something we're looking pretty closely at. Um, an interesting one over the last couple of years has been Bloomin. Their their margins had trailed their casual dining peers for years, and this was constantly an opportunity, right? Like we have an opportunity here. We have an opportunity. And they weren't really able to capitalize it on it, but over the last couple of years, man, despite the pandemic, they've been able to really widen their operating level margins, uh, and, and not only catch up, but surpass most a lot of their casual dining peers and they're actually above average right now so uh you know kudos to that management team um really really did a great job um you know i'm looking at you know how fast cps are growing right what's the dividend yield uh the balance sheet you know i'm looking for uh what kind of leverage are they operating which are they under are they operating with are they under levered you know should i be concerned about the the amount of leverage uh, do they have net operating loss carry forwards on the balance sheet? Something that can help them ramp up uh, share repurchases, which is, you know, people throw a lot of shade at, at share buybacks. But in the restaurant business, we have a bottleneck and that's that's labor, right? So you can only grow your train so fast um, because there's a sh- shortage of labor in the industry. And there always is. There's always a shortage of, of, of um, really good employees, especially good managers. And one of the biggest correlations between a restaurant level success um, is having a very good experienced general manager. So because of that bottleneck, you know, share buybacks are, are a great way to, to return capital to your shareholders, um, you know, dividends as well. But uh, net operating loss carry forwards are, are you know, have, have been, in my experience, a, a pretty good tool that companies have used to help accelerate. Uh, the buyback and, and return cash to shareholders that way. Um, free cash flow, obviously, um, cash is, is the reality of the business, how much cash they're generating. Uh, in this business, how franchised are you, right? A franchise business is a more solid business. It, it's easier to predict their earnings and cash flow. It's much higher margin. It's asset light. And so the more franchised you are, as long as you have healthy franchisees, you know, the higher multiple you're going to get in the market because it's it's a it's a safer play. There's a lot less operating leverage in that model versus a company that's 100% company owned. There's a ton of operating leverage in that man, and a lot of fixed costs. So you know, your sales drop, same store sales drop five percent year over year. Your margin's going to get clipped hard, right? And and that's you know a concern, obviously, right now with all the inflation that we're seeing and, and potentially being in a recession. So. Um, you know, the franchisees have a little bit of a buffer, you know, nobody gets away scot-free franchisee health in a recession is always a concern. You know, look at a company like Domino's, there was a lot of concern about the health of their franchisees during the the great financial crisis. Um, They did a phenomenal job coming out of that, but um, you know, that's a real issue, but, but the the amount of franchising in your system is, is definitely critical to analyzing this uh, company. And then, and then when you're looking at franchise stores, I I look at it like a franchisee, you know, my mentor always taught me money flows to where it's treated best. And so if I have the opportunity to open a McDonald's, a Jack in the box, a Wendy's, um, uh, Raising Cane's, a Zaxby's, some of these like hotter emerging chicken. I saw Raising Cane's the other day in Austin. Yeah. Yeah, um, a hop dotty stuff, you know, some of these hot brands, if you have a chance to to franchise them, you know, you're going to look at the unit economics, what's my sales to investment ratio, what's my return on investment, what's, what's my, uh, what kind of revenue per store am I am I running? What's the labor requirements? What, what are my margins, right? What, what am I going to make off this? And so that's kind of how I look at these franchise chains when I'm trying to figure out how fast they can grow is like, how attractive are you to franchisees, you know? Um, and what, and a, and a question that I often ask is, you know, what percentage of your new franchises are opened by existing franchisees? You know, and I like to hear when they're telling me 75% or above, because that means the franchisees are happy. 
Right? Sure. Yeah. They, that means that unit economics are strong and, and they want to put that cash to use, you know, and then, and I'd say another one, it would be like, you know, how, what, you know, like I mentioned, um, no buybacks, but how are you using your cash? Um, you know, what are the returns you're getting on your investments, whether it be tech, uh, whether it be share buybacks, you know, um, uh, things of that nature, you know, are, are they going to be responsible stewards, uh, of my capital? Yeah, I guess the, the franchisee uh, comment was was super important, I guess, during COVID as well, where, you know, again, those that had, you know, when you go to zero, uh, you know, they can waive some of these fees, but you don't have that fixed cost um, that many of the non-franchisee kind of stores, obviously people kind of adapted and, and quickly tried to do takeout and pick up and things like that. Um, but the landlord yeah. still wants his or her money yeah. at the end of the month and, you know, you, you have bills to pay, right? And so, sure. yeah. Yeah, that was also important as well from a... Uh, concentration risk standpoint of, you know, it's good to have really good franchisees, but it's also uh, the risk goes where, you know, you have uh, a tight knit group of franchisees that necessarily there's concentration risk. I know that was brought up a lot um, during that period. Again, it probably comes up the most when things are tough. Because uh, again, you have one bad franchisee that's going through some form of distressed something because you don't know their leverage. Um, there could be an issue. But again, if they're running it uh, successfully, there's probably always a buyer on the other side of, of that. Um, yeah. And, and that's where it helps to have to not be too levered. Right. Uh, most of these chains have the right of first refusal. So when other when their franchisees are struggling, they have the first right to come in and pick it up, fix it uh, and then refranchise it later down the road if they so choose. So that's where you want to have a little at least some flexibility on your balance sheet to, to um, take advantage of things when, when they arise. Right. Sure. Yeah. So let's go to the next section. I think that was a, a really good like introduction to the industry, which is, you know, what, uh, again, I'm just reiterating it for everybody's purpose, which is, you know, what's the dynamics of the industry kind of like, what does each section or segment serve, uh, literally. Um, and then the margin structures, you know, uh, the flexibility there in terms of, you know, more people oriented versus convenience and technology and, and GNA oriented versus, you know, the next phase is really around what drives, you know, margins, which is same source sales, on a fixed cost base and that'll uh, flex your margins up or down on top of everything like food costs and, and, and so on. So let's, let's get to the industry today, the health of it. Um, you know, there's things like there's two, there's two sides of it. There's the inflation story. Um, and you know, there's dynamics happening there. There's also the technology story with a lot of things happening there as well. Um, then there's how they're operationally, uh, uh, functioning, which is, you know, a lot of these locations went from, 80%, you know, uh, either drive through or in store to 50, 50, you know, uh, delivery models, um, on top of that. And maybe we get to it, which is ghost kitchens, which is, you know, you hear that from Darden and some others kind of create, creating things inside of their utilizing their kitchen to its full capacity and creating sub brands, uh, outside of that. So I know that was a lot there, but basically the health of the industry and I'll, I'll pick apart anything that, uh, we didn't cover. Yeah, there's a lot of stress on the industry, right? I mean, we went from out of the frying pan into the fire, right? The first concern was, uh, especially for the full service chains, first concern was like, you know, what are we going to do? Sales are down 60%, right? And then um, you finally got to a point last year where sales had fully recovered in all segments of the industry. Casual dining finally caught up, full service finally caught up and got into positive territory versus pre-pandemic. And uh, as soon as as soon as they got out of that inflation hit. So, um you know, last year was still turned out to be a really good year. And uh, a big reason why is because the, the restaurants were so understaffed and people still wanted to go out uh, that um, margins were great. 
you know, last year was a, a really, really great year for a lot of the chains we covered. They generated record free cash flow at many of these chains and record earnings uh, because they just didn't have enough people in the restaurants um, to, to handle all the business that they were getting. And, and so uh, although it hurt the experience, which long term isn't a good thing because right. you know, it'll, it, it'll turn people off. But uh, people were just so excited to get back out and see friends and family. And a restaurant is a perfect place to do that. It's such a popular place to do that here in the States. And, um, you know, so it turned out to be a good year. But but this year has been different. So we're getting pretty close to being full staffed at almost all of the, the restaurant chains we covered. And it's not full staffed. I'm, I'm going to say we're getting back to pre, I should say we're getting back to pre pandemic mm-hmm. levels, right? We're getting back to that like 95% ish uh, staffed and, and we're getting close to that. So now we're full, fully staffed, but it's been very expensive. You know, um, labor is up high single digits this year. Commodity prices are up, you know, mid single digits this year. And so, you know, restaurants are very careful to, to, um, you know, price that into their menu because, you know, they know it, it'll turn people off and people will start, um, moving back into the grocery stores and, and stuff like that. And, um, so, so they've been kind of taken in on the chin a bit here on, on the margin side. And then also, as you mentioned, you know, demand has changed so much over the last, this industry has changed so much over the last couple of years. And, you know, we talk about it a lot, but, you know, it accelerated all of these trends, right? Like the working from home trend and the, um, you know, uh, delivery trend. And so there's been these huge shifts where restaurant chains, you know, their restaurants that were monsters in the, in the cities and urban centers are now, you know, down big still versus pre pandemic and their suburban stores that were struggling to hang on are now knocking the cover off the ball. And, um, you're, you know, you're seeing ghost kitchens now investment has been huge. Um, and you're seeing those ghost kitchens pop up in the suburbs to, to kind of meet a lot of that demand and a lot of chains using them to, to ease some of the pressure in the restaurant, right? Like these aren't, these restaurants weren't built to do 25% takeout and and delivery. Like they just weren't, you know, like the industry was doing, you know, half of that pre pandemic. And, you know, a lot of the full service chains, they don't, they don't want Grubhub or Uber Eats drivers like clogging up their lobby. And, um, you know, the kitchen's not set up for it. And so it, it, it's just caused, there's been so many, um, it's it's created a lot of complexity, a lot of, um, you know, just complexity and, and issues for these restaurant chains to, to try to figure out on the fly, right? Yeah, no, that makes a, a lot of sense. So, so obviously there's, you know, I look at a list here and I'm looking at commodity prices from the year-to-date highs, right? So I know it smooths out. How quick, so, so everything from, you know, avocados down 63% from its year-to-date highs. Chicken wings, we've we've seen that with wings stop. I mean, they're like actively saying that you know their prices are lower than everything else, which is a smart move. Mm-hmm. You know, everything from oats to uh, I'm just going down this list, but um, box beef and I don't know chicken there. Yeah, just just different categories. So like, you know, the 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 method that they've done so far is essentially you know hold their prices at a pretty reasonable level. Uh, don't increase their consumer price relative to the size of the, the input cost that they saw. You know, commodities ebb and flow. We've seen that. You think it's more of a, a function of them see, uh, investing through that cycle, seeing this as more cyclical than any sort of st- structural change. And what we've seen, I think, in the past is, you know, when avocado prices go up or down, Chipotle's guacamole goes up and down. Um, therefore, you know, just trying to get your perspective of a year from now when potentially uh, prices for commodities uh, ebb and flow, whether it's they continue their their path where they are now. Does that 
offer the opportunity for margin expansion? Does that offer the opportunity for some of the uh, chains that that raise prices to then kind of take it down? You know, is there that wiggle room, or is there there's something in the restaurant category where once your price is a price, it, it kind of never goes back down? Uh, it, it's you know, you mentioned two that tend to fluctuate a little bit: uh, wings sure. and avocados. Um, for That's the most, you eat every weekend. That's <laughs> I mean, I eat a lot of both of those. To yeah. be honest, uh, they're both fantastic. But uh, those are two that that you will see because they're pretty volatile um, sure. at different times of the year. There's seasonality to them, um, so you'll, you'll see them pricing up and down. But in general, you're not. I don't think you're going to see menu prices drop. So you know, it, it's tough though because if the commodities drop, that could because that could be because you know we're in a recession. Man. Right. right. And demand drops. And so uh, that's kind of how I, I'm thinking about the next year. I, I expect demand to drop. I expect traffic to drop in the, in the industry. Um, and I, I expect some some easing uh, of those commodity prices. But since these chains haven't increased their prices enough to keep up with the inflation that they're seeing, you know, it's going to be kind of a give and take. Right. They're going to benefit from this cheaper costs, but then they're also going to have to start discounting a little bit more. And we're already seeing it with some of the chains that we cover because the low income consumers aren't visiting as often. So, um, you know, Shake Shack's running their first happy hour special in it, in special, first special in its history doing a happy hour special. And, um, you know, KFC is running discounts right now. Um, for their low income consumers, they added mac and cheese bowls and other, you know, lower cost items to try to try to bring those low income consumers back in. So I see kind of a, a give and take where, um, you know, what are the gains that they could make because of the lower commodities are going to be offset by, you know, discounts. Yeah, by discounting and by just lower, you know, uh, the impact of, of sales leverage. If, if sales go down, you know, it, it hurts your margins, as we talked about earlier. So um, it's kind of a give and take there. And it's it's a tough one to figure out, you know, longer term. I'm not an expert, uh, but in my past, I traded a lot of commodities. I mean, it sure feels like we're on the early stages of a commodity bull market. You know, the last one lasted about a decade. Um, you know, we, we've seen seen very modest commodity price inflation for um, 10 years. And now it, it seems like we're in the early stages of another one. Um, you know, those those uh, ebb and flow with the economy, right, uh, with the with the potential recession. But over the next 10 years, I think we could see a lot of commodity inflation. And, um, you know, it's a big and it's a big reason why you're seeing restaurants finally uh, invest in tech and invest in automation to try to offset uh, some of these costs they see coming down the pike. Yeah, that was going to be my next uh, the next section here, which is really around w- what you're seeing from the the operators in terms of uh, automation to, to combat some of this stuff. I think it was inevitable in many ways. Um, maybe the price points weren't there. So therefore, you know, the return on that investment wasn't there. But obviously, as the price of things go up and down, um, and it, there's uh, bouts of inflation, you know, so so talk about what kind of tools you're seeing kind of start to creep into these chains. Um, and ultimately, what you're hearing anecdotally about what that means for future uh, return on that investment dollar relative to let's just say, it's getting rid of one employee for the for four terminals um and or you know uh pick up take out drive uh, shake shack with their uh drive through um and chipotle even has kind of you know they have their chipotle lane but um they're basically trying to they, they've ran tests in the past around true um drive through experiences it's just 
again, think about uh, the automation equation here and what you're hearing. Uh, from yeah, technology. yeah, that's a great question. And and you bring up a good point there, right? Like there's at first the technology is very expensive and there may not be an ROI on it. And but eventually there will be right um, as as labor costs continue to rise and as the technology costs fall, right? Um, a good example of that is server handhelds, which are becoming ubiquitous uh, here in the States. But, you know, four or five years ago when, you know, Chili's, uh, Brinker's Chili's was one of the first to kind of start using these server handhelds. And like, I think it was probably around 2016, 2017. And uh, they were only using them in LA and Seattle and places where minimum wage was $15 an hour because it was the only place that had an ROI on it. But now they've rolled them out to the entire country because the the cost of the technology has fallen. uh, And, you know, obviously wage rates have have increased um, in the industry now is paying more than minimum wage just to attract talent. So, um, yeah, I think we're going to continue to see that in different ways. And uh, kiosks, I think, are going to be ubiquitous. Um, it was interesting. People didn't want them, you know, six, seven years ago. Jack in the Box, I had them and people didn't want them and they took them out. And now... Um, it's funny. Mc- yeah. And then McDonald's, like you mentioned their scale and how they went from a technology laggard to a leader in just like a few years under the previous CEO, Greg Easterbrook. And, um, you know, they rolled out kiosks. I think, I think by the end of this year, they'll have the entire United States on kiosks. And I, I think, yeah. And I think they're going to just break 13,500 stores, man. It's a, it's a big rollout. What was, what was the, um, replacement there? Like, uh, do you know the dynamics of like how many people are in the store versus how many kiosks are in the store? Um, yeah, they they haven't. I'm not sure to be honest. They didn't haven't. Uh, they haven't really given us good color on that. But uh, you know, I think we're going to see them everywhere. Um, you know, Shake Shack has been installing them in all of their stores for a few years now. All of their new stores. Um, it, it it makes a lot of sense because younger generations want to use it. Everybody spends more when they use it, right? Um, they don't feel that pressure of people like. Uh, behind them, like the hanging, pressure, on, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, like hanging on their neck, and it's just like ah, just give me a number two, whatever, you know. <laughs> like they have the time to actually customize their order a little bit more, which increases the the check. You know, right, they have they have time um, to add for add-ons, and then they could you know do the suggestive based selling through it too, right? Like oh, you might like this. Um, they could McDonald's can pitch you know McFlurries because it's a hundred degrees outside, you know, uh, and, and things like that. So um, it's really quickly become a no-brainer. Um, I'm going to bring up McDonald's again, but, you know, they had have been doing, I think they're always doing work on, you know, how many steps in the kitchen your your cooks are taking, right? And so trying to reduce the amount of steps that they need to take, trying to increase the amount of burgers um, they can cook at one time, like all of this, these kind of things to try to reduce um, kitchen labor. And, and so, you know, a lot of these chains are, are improving the, you know, they're spending money to improve the the kitchen equipment that they have and to make quote unquote, make their employees jobs easier, but also they're not going to admit it, but also to reduce labor in the kitchen and in the front of the house. So, um, yeah, I mean, you see all these examples in, um, California, obviously, which has been dealing with higher, um, labor costs in the rest of the country for years now. Uh, the chains that are based out of California, man, they, they're working hard on automation. You have, uh, Chipotle working on uh, Chippy, they call it. It's an AI uh, robot robot that that uh, makes tortilla chips. And uh, Jack in the Box has yeah has uh, automated fryers uh, that that they're testing right now in in some of their San Diego locations. So uh, automation is is going to be the way out of this for the restaurant chains. I mean, listen, man, it, it's not a high margin business like we're talking about. You know, if after a 15% operating margin, and then you're paying the corporate level expenses and marketing and everything else. 
what are you left with? You know, a mid, mid to high, you know, net margin. It's, it's yeah. not a high margin business. And so when you're seeing the inflation you're seeing and you have to take some of that commodity inflation on the chin and your labor's going up 8% this year, Darden thinks uh, between now and middle of next year, they think uh, labor inflation can be another 7%. Right. Like before, we used to just be able to look at, you know, who's raising their minimum wage, which states are raising their minimum wage and by how much. And then how much do these uh, companies, each company have, how much exposure do they have to those states? And we could kind of get a feel for how much their, their labor. Code. But now, you know, with labor being it's with being such an issue to find labor, you know, it's it's like a wild card. And we're seeing these high single digit increases year after year. And it's 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 tough for for a low margin business to to absorb those costs. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, you know, it goes back to a, 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 like a, a general philosophy we have is where, you know, humans tend to adapt, meaning management teams in, in the investment world. But, you know, during COVID, you couldn't, there was zero volume coming to your store. So guess what? You turned into a, a delivery pickup, whatever you wanted business, um, delivery alcohol business. If you had, if you served yeah. any alcohol, um, you, be, you became a butcher and a, a meat distribution company. Yeah. Um, and that evolution, now you have the, the pickup of inflation and, and the cost of, you know, uh, uh, employees and and that's sending the next evolution where these companies adapt and evolve and with a, a main goal of maintaining margin. Um, so it's this continued like evolution of you know whatever you face with you you adapt and you evolve. And I just think that's always an important message, no matter the industry, but broadly speaking, as you know, if you invest in a good company with a management team that has the ability to you know make bold decisions, execute, think uh, independently, and make the right calls, I think. Um, that's ultimately where you get the Starbuckses of the world and yeah. and, and and some others. Yeah. Um, yeah, Texas Roadhouse is one that was. I mean, they were doing almost no takeout. It was like six percent of their business, and it was like mainly people like bringing something home for somebody else that couldn't make it to the restaurant, right? So, um, th they absolutely crushed it during the pandemic. Um, never did any delivery. Ref still refuses to do delivery, right? But they. They brought that like Texas Roadhouse ethos into the parking lot, and they were doing line dancing in the parking lot and having parties in the parking lot. And like you mentioned, oh, uh, they were smart. one of the ones that, that was that that created the online butcher shop. And you know, they they went from almost no takeout sales to a to a nice nice chunk to it being a nice nice chunk of their business in in, in almost no time. And so I think this this business in general. Uh, is very entrepreneurial. There's a lot of ingenuity, especially at the at the restaurant level and the GMs, and um, you know, and it's a resilient business because it's not it's not as we're talking about. It's not easy. It's not an easy business, and um, so the people that succeed in it, you know, have seen a lot, right? And so uh, that's part of the reason why I love this this business. I mean, the, the culture of the people in the business is phenomenal. Um, everybody's so hospitable. Everybody helps each other. Like it's not a, a, like a cutthroat business. I think I guess part of it is just it's so big, and you're not always competing. Uh, you know, your competitors are so diverse, and it's not only the restaurant next door to you. It's it's the grocery store and the convenience store, and um, you know, the ballpark and a million different other places where you could, could kind of get food. So yeah, uh, I yeah. I remember when uh, uh, Chipotle was coming fast and so were some other, you know, the lime freshes of the world and that whole like Mexican cuisine, Tex-Mex cuisine. And you had someone like a McDonald's basically start selling burritos um, and different types of things. And then they, you know, they took it all off their menu and their their unit volume is much higher then. And it just goes to show you how big this industry is, is while McDonald's went on the defensive for a moment, they actually realized, you know, let's just do our core business for the most part. And we'll be fine. Um, and, and it's really they had turned the business around. Right. It's, it's pretty wild. 
Yeah, so a couple more areas, you know, I think um, I, I just wanted to, to make one note on that automation or that experience you talked about, which was um, around that digital experience when you're at a kiosk and it's personalized. You know, that is the ultimate open door now for a rewards program from a, for a relationship that you can build, whether it's communication directly, discounts, things like that. Um, I think that is such a big thing going forward in this industry, which again, we, I've, we've been down the door with their names, but you know, Starbucks and, and Chipotle do a, a really good job at building rewards programs and or pickup experiences that work, um, starting with digital. Uh, I think the number is like what several billions of dollars of a gift card uh, inside of Starbucks uh, ecosystem still that haven't been spent. Um, just talk about the, the 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 opening door here for uh, these relationships that can be built uh, with these with these brands uh, that didn't exist like 15 years ago. There were there was relationships, but I think now you're getting one where you know if you acu- accumulate enough rewards, like you're kind of you know it's like hotel chains in a sense. It's, just talk about that kind of change and dynamics on a go forward basis. It's a huge opportunity, uh, you know, and, and the chains that are figuring it out and, and we're still not even really there yet, but the faint, the chains that are the furthest ahead, think Starbucks and Chipotle over the last couple of years and, and Domino's, which, you know, yeah, they've been yeah. struggling uh, a bit here because, you know, their, their drivers are, are, you know, would rather work for Grubhub and DoorDash and Uber Eats because they just have many more deliveries and they can make more money. Um, but that's another one, you know. But Starbucks was probably the first to, to create an app that really changed and a ro- loyalty program that really changes people's behavior. Um, you know, Domino's was is another one that was ahead of the game in terms of the the one on one one to one marketing, right? But I mean, you know, to your point, people are walking around with a billboard in their pocket, right? You know, as opposed to just spraying money all over uh, media, TV, and radio, and hope that people uh, that are interested in your brand like get wind of it and 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 it impacts their behavior, you can, you know, you can you know directly advertise and give discounts to people at the times that they want and need them, right? Like they can they you know uh, they know me and my son like to go out to eat on a Monday night, and you know they could send me something like at four thirty right before I go home. You know, a restaurant could send me something right before I go home. Like, you know, hey, you know, whatever. This is the discount we have. You know, buy one get one. Whatever. Um, if you if you come in tonight, and um, as opposed to just more broad reaching discounts that, you know, often what you're doing is just giving people a discount that we're going to come anyway. You know, so you can kind of really tailor your messaging, tailor your advertising to you know a different archetype or to somebody's behavior, um, and it it's not easy to do. Uh, the right. chains are, aren't fully there yet. They're getting better with it. Um, you know, that they, they've created customer archetypes and they send different emails to, to different archetypes, depending, um, on, on what their ha- habits are. But, um, but the chains that can really figure it out that they, that can have, that can take all of this data because everybody's inundated with data and most chains don't really know what to do with it, but the chains that can figure out what to do with all of this customer data and how they can impact their customer behavior are going to continue to be so far ahead of the competition. I mean, over the last decade, if you look at a Panera, a Starbucks and Domino's, um, you know, I'd say digital is probably 80, 90% of the reason why they've outperformed their peers by so much. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. We we always start with like what brands have like a cult like following and that's like ultimately the, uh, the ability now that 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 kind of speaks to this last little section here, which is uh, emerging brands. Um, you know, it's it's really those brands that um, are building something 
call it cult-like in a uh, lack of a better phrase, I guess, um, something where, you know, it resonates with consumers, whether it's experience, brand, food, probably the combination of all, um, to be honest with you, and, and value, I guess, uh, oriented in terms of what the perception is to the end user. Um, just talk about any emerging brands that you see. Uh, and then uh, you alluded to some on the on the more negative side, but um, we'll, we'll stick with mostly emerging brands and then and then a couple of uh, some junks on some other companies. Yeah, you know, we... we... Um, there's just so many, um, I'm familiar with so many, uh, and there's so many different things, you know, a friend of mine, Lauren Bailey runs, uh, um, a chain of wine bars, uh, in, in, in the South, uh, Southwest, uh, primarily, uh, Arizona, I think she's got some of Colorado, she's moving in, into Texas and, you know, the food and the service are phenomenal. They have good wine at a very attractive, uh, price point. It's a cool spot of music, you know, um, and, and, and it brings in kind of a younger crowd, uh, w- which a lot of these emerging brands are trying to do. And they, and, and they, she does a nice job about it, of it. You know, I mentioned, uh, uh, hop Dottie, um, which is, uh, you know, a burger spot that, that hasn't, does a nice job as, um, oh, wait, it's like counter service. You know that? <laughs> What's that? I did have that actually, uh, in Austin. Oh yeah. The fries are phenomenal, aren't they? Yeah. Yeah. It was good. Um, someone told me to go there and I, it was one of the only things open and, on this one street that everything was happened to be closed really early and it was delicious actually. Wow. I didn't know it was yeah. actually, I thought it was uh, just on the street. <laughs> yeah, no, they, they've, uh, they've, I don't know, 50, 60 locations or something now. And there's some tacos spots out of, uh, the Texas area, Torchy's tacos, uh, velvet taco. Um, you know, a lot of these, um, kind of elevated food and service, um, type, um, fast food or fast casual type type spots. Um, you know, and then there's, there's places, you know, I think we talked about, um, Naya and, uh, Bole and some of these spots that, um, are kind of, um, hitting on, you know, uh, healthier for you type of things. Right. And so, yeah. um, Mediterranean almost, and Bole. Yeah. They're almost taking like the Chipotle, uh, operational intensity. You walk through a line and counter and build your own thing. Uh, but just, recreating the flavor uh palette yeah yeah with the, just different cuisines and and so that everybody wants to find the next chipotle man i mean that was a monster um and it continues to be i, I mean their their sales are up 30 percent in uh, on a three-year stack basis man i mean they're they're absolutely crushing it they give they they hit on the sustainability aspect uh they give money to charity and and um it's better for you. They care about the environment. They, you can eat healthy in there if you like. Right. And so they, they've been able to hit on so many, uh, of these trends and, and you see a lot of these emerging brands trying to, to hit on at least a couple of of those, um, of those things that, to help kind of create some hype and create that cult following. Right. Sure. Cool. Um, you know, I think that is where we should wrap. Um, you know, we've been talking for a little bit here. I think it's very informative from, you know, the beginning of understanding what um, what to look for in this industry uh, in general. You know, what are some of the trends happening? Uh, I think th- the best way to phrase it again is uh, kind of evolution or uh, they adapt. It's, it's an industry that adapts. Digital is transforming the industry for how you either communicate with the brands or experience the brands or use the brands in general. Um, and then lastly, yeah, there's so many up and coming brands coming up 
I think actually start with digital, which is an interesting thing yeah. where, you know, they're building these loyal followings at like a, a scale of 30, 40, 50 locations, starting with digital first. And you can do um, it right from the beginning. You know, it's a lot harder when you're a McDonald's and you're layering all of these different technology pieces into the business. And then you have to retrain your employees. But when you, you can create and, you know, Kava is one that I think about, you know, and, and they've, you know, I didn't mention them, but they're, they're not so emerging. I mean, they've, they've, they're pretty big now, but, um, you know, they, from the beginning created these these restaurants that are um you know pretty tech heavy and a lot of um and and when you do it from the beginning you can you can kind of do it right you know yeah yeah i mean you can make it part of the brand right yeah. i think that's the whole thing is yep. that's why probably the 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 older uh brands weren't able to because you know people just wanted their you know their yellow wrap of of mcdonald's cushioning around it and the the experience was this old school or at, at some point it was old school kind of you know burger joint that you had this nostalgia towards and um you know going toward with a kiosk totally changed the experience so starting with that experience first and going up again it just it, it shows how these brands can scale much quicker uh build audience much faster sweet greens i think is, is a pretty good one as well that it's done a successful job there but we will stop there um i think that was awesome michael thanks for having you on um and coming on with us uh and you know for your sake if where to find you uh if people wanted to learn more uh, I know there's a lot of Bloomberg terminal users probably listening in as well. It's yeah. an easy place to find you. But generally speaking, you know, people to learn more about Michael and, and what you're doing. I know you guys have a, a cool podcast, chopping it. I listen to it. Um, so yeah, anything you wanted to share before? I yeah. All right, cool. Yeah, we're uh, chopping it up right now. If you go on um, SoundCloud, you can find us. Just search Bloomberg Intelligence, uh, popular podcast, and you can find our podcast there right now. We're still in the process of getting it up on uh, Apple and Spotify, hopefully soon. Um you know, my, uh, spelled H A L E N. So Mike Halen, at, uh, Mike Halen is my tag on Twitter. Um, you know, you could search me through the bio function on, uh, the Bloomberg terminal or same thing, Mike Halen, uh, on LinkedIn. Cool. And if you ride bikes or uh, do anything outdoors, he's your guy. So cool. All right, Michael. Appreciate it, man. Thanks for having me, Sean.